Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome to the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. We continue Prime Minister's Week this week. It is the 300th anniversary of Robert Walpole becoming Britain's first Prime Minister. Uh, that's been marked on Saturday. So all this week we're taking a uh, look at what it takes to be PM. And it's Wednesday, no PMQs because MPs are off uh, on their Easter recess. So we thought we'd take an in-depth look at what it takes to succeed at PMQs. We listen back to some best and worst bits and speak to some people who've both written the jokes and then uh, taken the mickey out of them in the papers afterwards. That's coming up in just a sec. But first, it's our columnist panel. It's Wednesday, so it must be uh, Cramp Alice. I think we're calling them. It's Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson. Let's talk about... Well, I feel a bit weird about doing this because we're sort of... Let's talk about this report that nobody's read because all we've got is a press release saying yeah. everything is fine. And it already feels like everyone is adopting their their positions they would have done anyway. Uh, some people saying, look, this report says, according to the press release, there's no evidence of institutional racism. And then lots of other people saying, well, if you believe that, you believe anything. And then before you know it, we're talking about white working class boys. An important issue, though not necessarily the issue that we're, you know, was the, the starting point of all this. Um, wh- what do you make of it, first of all, Robert? Uh, I think the use of the word model, a uh, uh, model for... Uh building a multi-ethnic society might be unfortunate. I think that might come back to haunt them. If you, if I were looking at, looking at some of the stats, as I have just done this morning, about school exclusions and about uh, death in childbirth and about stop and search, uh, and I was a, a, a young black kid, I would maybe think that that was an unfortunate choice of word. Uh, having said that, there's a lot of, obviously, there's good news uh the pay gap narrowing uh surprised me uh and delighted me uh as does the scrapping of the bame uh acronym which i think never really caught on and which i thought was fantastically condescending in lumping all non-white people into one into one group uh but the main finding i think that class is more important than race and race is important as and when it in- intersects with social inequality I think that is. Uh, I think that's largely true. I mean, that is largely my experience, and that and the st- statistics on 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 pay and uh, educational achievement are starting to bear that out. So, uh, g- good news, I think, but possibly 
It's slightly oversold. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, Alice? Like, if everything was hunky-dory, there'd be nobody suggesting that this com- the report should have been commissioned. And if the government... Mm. You know, we've seen it. It's been a live... It's very much a live issue right now. The uptake of the vaccine is lower amongst those from ethnic minority uh, groups. And uh, that's that... that, down in part to sort of a lack of trust in the institutions for one reason or another. Yeah. I mean, that's what really worries me most, is that, that if you look at it, you think... Isn't that fantastic and isn't it wonderful? Um, but actually, it also feels rather smug and self-satisfied because you do realise that, particularly at the moment with vaccines, but almost always when you have a story that there is this issue with um, you know, the ethnic minority take-up of the vaccines has been really low. And part of that must be the fact that they mistrust institutions, even the NHS, that they're worried about it. And, and that should worry us as well. So I think the report, in a way, I'd like to have seen the whole report before we talk about it, because it does seem bizarre that they leak it like this in a, oh, isn't it all fantastic and isn't it all wonderful and don't bother reading the whole thing, um, is slightly, I think, condescending to us. And it's a, a way of trying to manage everybody's expectations rather than letting us look at the report and decide for ourselves what we think. And I think, it, it, I don't know, it strikes me that, that Theresa May maybe got the tone a bit better, you know, in her famous speech on the steps of number 10, uh, when she talked about the burning injustices. And she listed a whole load of them. They weren't all about race, but making the point that if you're a young black boy, you're, you're more likely to be treated more harshly by the criminal justice system um, uh, and so on. And actually, what? there's no point pretending that everything is fine and dandy in the country. That's not what people no. expect from politics. Nor, nor, nor that it must have got radically better in the in the few years since she made that speech, which 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 struck the right notes then, I think. And uh, although I mean things might have got a bit better, I mean one hopes they have. In how long ago was that? Five years, six years? Then they can't have got that much better. And we know from the statistics that they haven't. Uh, yeah, I think there's a danger that would. I mean, there's a difference between people mistrusting institutions and those institutions actually being racist. I'm I'm never been entirely comfortable with the term institutional racism because I'm not entirely sure I know what it means. I think it came out of the McPherson report into the police uh, in the late 90s. And, it, and what it seemed to me was that there were a lot of policemen who were racist, which was undeniably true. Uh, and they still no doubt exist. And that might explain part of the... Uh, the, the 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 arrest figures, for instance, or the criminal justice figures, uh, but that a whole institution is racist, like the NHS, for instance, that seems to me to be palpably untrue. Uh, so, what we need to do is, if there is mistrust of that institution for whatever reason, they need that needs to be addressed. Uh, you take my point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And I, 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 it, it's, it's difficult to see how a country can be institutionally right. You're like, some of the institutions I'm just not, might be. But yes, I'm just not sure how much use it's got as a kind of yes. analytical tool. Yeah, yeah, Do you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? I mean, other than saying, yes, lots of people are, still are racist and some of them are in positions of power, which is true uh, and needs to be addressed, I'm not sure what use it has to describe an institution. Are you saying that you then, what, you scrap the whole institution? So, I mean, I don't think... I'm more worried about the white working class boys and the education when we keep taking out individual groups and saying these ones aren't doing well and these ones aren't doing well when actually what we need to say is we need to bring up education for people who are the most disadvantaged so I mean it it is shocking how few children seem to think they want to go to university when they're 14 of all groups actually but it's that aspiration that you want to improve and it has improved obviously 
in ethnic minority groups. But it's, I think we're trying to be too divisive almost about it. What we need to say is, look, education needs to get better across the country, that that is one also, of the real problems that Britain still has. But but also, also, I, know, I, know, I know white working class boys who, made a conscious, who could have gone to university, who made a conscious decision not to, and because they couldn't see the value of it. They trained to be plumbers instead. And that is, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's a lot right with it. I mean, if you try and get a plumber in London at the moment, I'd rather I'd quite be good if more people did that. Well, yeah, and so I, mean, not, I, I, know from, I know from personal not, experience, my dad wasn't thrilled at the idea. He was, yeah. he, he was a plumber. He wasn't thrilled at the idea of me going to university. He was quite pleased when, <laughs> when I then didn't. Uh, yes, Alice, and I, maybe, that, maybe that might have been a regressive thing then, Matt, possibly, I don't know, but it might not be now because yeah. uh, now that 50% of the people go to university and it's not, there's obviously a devaluation of, of, a, of, of the worth of a degree, some people, I think, make make a decision to say, "Well, you know, I don't want to do that," and it doesn't it doesn't have to be the only our only kind of yardstick of uh, attainment. And Alice, I just want to go back to the point you made. This this report was clearly set up to you know look at uh, the, the impact of racism on ethnic minority groups in the UK, and if the knee jerk reaction to it is always, "Oh, what about white working class boys?" I mean, that is an important yeah. issue, but we end up getting in, you know, yeah. and then it becomes a sort of competition of who's Who's worse? It, it sort of implies that uh, ethnic minorities should stop complaining because actually white working class boys are worse off, and it yeah. becomes more divisive. And I, yeah. and it's one or the other. I mean, it isn't one or the other. That's the problem. Yeah. You can't keep deciding to make a decision. You know, it's not. It, I totally get Robert's point about university, and actually, you know, like you know, his son's a chef. I, you know, my I can see my one of my children is definitely going to go into art and design, and it's not going to go down the university route. And that's fantastic and great. But if you're looking at all these measures and saying how many of one group and how many of another are doing it, that's the wrong way of doing it. What you want to say is, look, we're going to give everyone an amazing education, and they can then decide which route they want to take. What we shouldn't be saying is let's bring up one group, then we'll bring up the next group, then we haven't got enough women, then we haven't got, you know. I think mm. it just becomes too divisive in the end that you're constantly saying balancing one group off against another group. And that, in the end, what you're saying is they're competing against each other, which is the last thing you really want to have. But I just I go back to the point that if, it, right, mm. you know, in the biggest crisis the country faces, there's clearly something wrong if one group, in this case, you know, particularly black people, have been worst hit in terms of the number of deaths from coronavirus and are less likely to take the vaccine. That, 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 there's clearly something wrong in the country, if that's the case. Um, and uh, just you know, saying things like, oh, that everything, basically everything's hunky-dory, we're a model to the world, just strikes me as completely crackers. Yeah. That's what... That's British. what I... So weirdly, if you're talking about, you know, what it is to be British, being smug, self-satisfied, talking about how wonderful we are, doesn't really feel very us, actually, to say... You know, no. It's an odd... It's a sort of boasting, which is actually... Very un-British in some ways. That's some yeah. sense of oh god, we're fantastic, we're amazing, we're so good at this. You should all be following our example. And it's kind of great something with quite a lot of us. Complacent mm. and ultimately possibly a little bit divisive, and uh, good. It might well give fuel to uh, you know very kind of radical elements, which I mean I think it will do. I think I'm slightly worried about the prospects for social unrest this summer, and uh, I think. If I were trying to stoke them up, I'd say, oh, well, look, you know, the, the government thinks everything's fine when it's palpably not fine in the, the uh, everyday experience of young black people. Then that's fuel to the flames, isn't it? And also this whole idea of being a beacon to the world. If you think of all the countries we normally compare ourselves to and say we're sort of competing <laughs> with, whether it's America or France or Australia or China, you know, let's it's. <laughs> 
Uh, it just don't get helpful. It's just not helpful. No, but, and, you know, the, 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 oh, we're, we're slightly better on racism when it comes to other major yes, economies of the world. Like, it's yeah. not a great... Yeah. Uh, no, it's, not it's not a not great post. Um, let's, uh, as we were talking about uh, how boys do at school, let's talk about your column in The Times today, uh, Alice, and you talk about the demonisation of boys, given everything we've, we've heard in the last few days, uh, the testimonies of uh, particularly girls, uh, uh, the misogyny, the sexual abuse they suffer at school. But you're worried about the impact this might have on boys too. Yeah, so I interviewed Soma Thor about three weeks ago, just after um, my daughter and my son had both picked up these increasing Instagram posts from children about how awful it was at their schools and just what had gone wrong, um, mainly from girls, but there were a few boys as well talking about how dreadful it was. And I found her, she was living with her grandmother in Paris where she is. And, and at the beginning, I thought it was really positive. It was all these women and girls coming forward with their testimonies. But what happened then is, first of all, the boys you know, would apologise for their behaviour and got in touch and said they felt bad about how they'd behaved. But increasingly, they felt more and more nervous. And I think what's happened is we've had not a backlash, but boys becoming very anxious about what their behaviour is, what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do worried when you know the police come out and say well actually all parents should shop their sons for what you know if they think they're doing anything illegal um it, it's become much too accusatory and antagonistic and sort of sense that all boys are behaving appallingly and all boys uh, need to be stopped rather than saying there is a major issue with this how can we get everyone to help and also asking boys to come forward and try and be part of the solution and get them to talk about it and get parents to talk about it and get everyone to be more open but I think what's going to happen if we're too angry and <clears throat> too um sort of uh, too almost just, just you know derogatory of all boys there will become a stage when they just think god we don't know what to do you know what are we supposed to be doing uh, what do you think, Robert? You're father of boys. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Alice. I don't want to, you don't, nobody wants to create an environment where, where there's a kind of witch hunt or where people are uh, afraid to have a discussion about it. But it's a bit like what we were talking about before. We can't just make it. This is about male aggression towards women. So therefore, we. I mean, I take Alice's point, but I don't think the discussion should centre necessarily on uh, the impact this has on or on. Uh, boys feeling accused uh it's it, it seems i mean you it, i think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago it's it's a, it's a, you, you think these things are getting better and then it's a shock when you realize that they uh seem to have got worse that there's a culture seems to have grown up or been allowed to grow up in some schools uh of a very uh of a kind of bullying and 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 sort of what i, I would have thought was an old fashioned sexist view of of women and girls and that is that is the issue uh now and that is that is that is has to be about older men i think telling younger men what is and what isn't acceptable and uh that doesn't seem to have been taking place and that's really concerning me uh i think i think men need to account for um, account for their behavior and if and okay that's it's asking a lot for a 16 year old boy to do that so therefore an older man teacher father has got to do it for him i mean i did that with my son uh i think when he when he hit his teens he's now 24 uh told him you know uh, there are certain ways that you behave around uh, women and certain ways you don't yeah and i suppose that's that's a crucial thing isn't it about having those conversations and you're right we don't 
You don't want to demonise boys totally, but maybe a bit, just to make, you know, in the same way that a couple of weeks ago in the wake of Sarah Everard, you had this whole conversation that, you know, people say not all men, but I mean, it is sort of. uh, But it's more about having the conversation. So, I mean, you do, I remember going to Amsterdam because I had to do a piece on why their sex education is so good there. And they literally start at five. So they're talking to the children in a very open way that the British would never be able to do. And I remember being shot because one of the boys who was six brought in a test tube of his father's sperm. I mean, and that just could not happen with us. We'd have been utterly stunned. And he had a straightforward conversation about how babies were made and they were very calm and rational. And as a result, they have the lowest rate of teenage pregnancy in Holland and they have the highest rates of self-regard among teenagers. And we're still with... More self-confidence because they... Yeah, we're just sort of still joking about it and embarrassed by it. And I mean, the parents yep. sit down and watch porn with the children and discuss it with them. We're still uh, we're still very squeamish about it, sex education in schools, uh, and there's still a kind of residual, uh, partly religion-driven uh, opposition to uh, the sort of sex education in schools that Alice describes. And if if the lads aren't getting their education there, then they're certainly getting it. We know where they're getting it. Uh, this the weird, uh, I'm gonna swear then the weird sort of uh, peculiar education that one gets from online porn saturation, which is a which is a a real obviously a, a real problem. If, if if teenage boys have kind of unfettered access to porn, then they're going to make use of it, and it's going to give them a very weird idea about sex and women. Yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, yeah, we just need to make, have those. Maybe the whole thing, the whole the summing up the whole conversation is we just need to talk about this stuff more and be less you, but you good, you bad. But sometimes it's going to be difficult conversations. Robert Clampton, Alice Thompson, there, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to the Times.co.uk forward slash Times Web Box. Up next, what does it take to win at PMQs? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, what does it take to win at PMQs? Order, order. I call Mark Chorley. I'm enjoying this. Weak, weak, weak. He was the future once. The Prime Minister's remarkable transformation from Stalin to Mr. Beam. 
I thought for a moment the Prime Minister was going to say Brexit means Brexit again. It talks about hindsight. I say catch up. Yes, to mark Prime Minister's Week this week. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first Prime Minister. Uh, we're taking a look at what it takes to be PM and one of the big tasks of the job is, of course, uh, appearing once a week at midday on a Wednesday and facing questions without knowing in advance what they're going to be. Uh, obviously, lots on the back benches, although lots of them tend to be a bit dull. So right now we're going to focus particularly on the clash between the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition. Often it can tell you who's up, who's down and who isn't capable of scoring an open goal. So, uh, in a moment, we'll hear from Quentin Letts, who's the current Times sketch writer and one of his predecessors, Anne Treneman, who spent years in the press gallery looking down on many high points and far more low points of Prime Minister's questions. But first, let's speak to two people who've spent hours prepping their leaders to battle it out over the dispatch box. Times Radio's very own Aisha Hazarika was an advisor to uh, Labour leader Ed Miliband. She's much better now. She joins me now. Hi, Aisha. <laughs> Hello. And Paul Harrison. Well, in, in fact, we can discuss in a moment who had the worst job. Paul Harrison used to prep Theresa May uh, for PMQs when he was press secretary. Morning, Paul. Morning. Uh, so uh, let's talk, first of all, about how you prep or what? You, what is the point of PMQs? And I suppose... Uh, to some extent, you you had slightly different jobs in that, Paul, you were prepping Theresa May to answer the questions. Aisha, you were prepping Ed Miliband to ask them. So let's start with you first, of Aisha. What, from the leader of the opposition's point of view, asking the questions, what do you hope to get out of, uh, of PMQs? Well, you hope to be able to kind of land uh, a good moment. As leader of the opposition, even in normal times, you do struggle to get a huge amount of cut through because, of course, you know, all the attention is on the prime minister. That's the whole point of becoming prime minister. So you have this moment where in normal times, again, everybody is in the chamber. The chamber is really dead most of the time. But when it's normal PMQs, the chamber is packed. The press gallery is packed. So you know that for that moment from sort of just after 12 o'clock till around about quarter past 12, 20 past 12, all eyes will be on you. So it's a really, really important moment for you to send a message via the press that it's a job audition for Prime Minister. It's a really important moment for you to basically say, look, look at me, um, I can prosecute an argument. It's also a really important tool from, for managing your party because if you look like you're doing a good job, it does mean you have an easier time managing the party. The party want a bit of cheer. Um, your troops want um, a bit of you know something to cheer at. Um, so it is important for leader of the opposition because it is a chance to get cut through. OK, then, and Paul, on the other side of the fence, uh, how much time does a prime minister spend prepping for PMQs and what can you hope to get out of it? Or is this sort of no score draw, no news committed? Is that the best you can hope from PMQs? I mean, the first thing I was thinking about this a bit this morning it is a deeply peculiar thing to do. It, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's deeply, deeply peculiar. Um, but... The lack of deference, I think, is good. You know, as you say, the PM doesn't get any any sight of what's going to go on in advance. And so it's a nervy thing that they have to do. But one of the reasons it's deeply peculiar is the investment of time. Like, as, as you were saying, Matt, it kind of, uh, with Theresa, we used to do half an hour on a Monday, which was a kind of our best guess about what would come up on Wednesday. And we were almost never right. So that was, <laughs> that was pretty well useless. Uh, an hour on a Tuesday at some point during the day where we could fit it in 
where we would sort of go into a bit more detail and, and write some scripts and work out some lines and then virtually all of Wednesday morning. I mean, it's a chunk of the PM's week when you consider all the actual stuff that they have on. Yeah, and whether or not that's a... Uh, like you said, you could spend the whole time prepping for something and then uh, mm. get caught off guard by the question. So you've essentially wasted, yeah. you know, the best part of a whole yeah. day. Uh, I mean, it is... Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's sort of... It's a much more... It's a much more defensive exercise if you are PM because it's really about sort of scrutiny and accountability. And, and as Aisha says, it's an opportunity for the leader of your position to put themselves in the shop window. That said, if you do have a good week and you land some blows, and in our case, you make Jeremy Corbyn look a bit silly, then everybody is more cheered up by that in the party. So, you know, there are opportunities for the PM too, but probably not as many as there are for the leader of the opposition. Well, let's uh, let's take a listen to uh, one clash uh, <laughs> between uh, your your old boss, in fact, Paul. Theresa May ne- won't necessarily be uh, uh, remembered for her wit, but sometimes she she did manage to surprise Jeremy Corbyn. Let's take a listen to uh, her um, landing. I mean, I think it's fair, this is pretty good. Let's take a listen. I, I did notice that the Right Honourable Gentleman had asked all his Twitter followers what questions he should ask me uh, this week, so I thought I would um, I thought I'd look to see what sort of responses he'd received. <laughs> I have to say that the first one was quite good. In fact, he might want to make sure he stays sitting down for this. <laughs> Lewis writes, does she know that in a recent poll on who would make a better Prime Minister... <laughs> Don't know scored higher than Jeremy Corbyn. Are you going to take credit for that, Paul? I don't think that's how it works. But every now and again, uh, you do. Yeah, every now and again, you do get those those moments that like it's the thing that everybody searches for. Stuff that makes people stop from their lives and sort of laugh and have an impact on them. So it's the holy grail. Well, let's take a listen because a couple of, I mean, when he used to speak to the media, uh, I spoke to David Cameron a, a year or so ago about. Uh, what it's like doing PMQs, and uh, he recalled his favourite moment for PMQs. You remember, this was after Ed Miliband uh, was revealed to have... Well, in fact, it was our one of our Times colleagues, Jenny Russell. Uh, you remember that Ed Miliband was filmed in a very small kitchen, and our colleague uh, Jenny Russell pointed out, I know uh, that's just a small supper kitchen. He's got two kitchens. So let's take a listen to David Cameron remembering uh, how he had some fun with that at PMQs. I can see the Shadow Chancellor chuckling. We, we know the Shadow Chancellor wants to be in the kitchen cabinet. He just doesn't know which kitchen to turn up to. I do feel sorry. I feel sorry for the Leader of the Opposition. He literally doesn't know where his next meal's coming from. Oh, don't worry, there's plenty more. We increase the doctors, we increase the nurses, and frankly, if he can't stand the heat, he better get out of his second kitchen. <laughs> On and on they went. Um, and, yeah, David Cameron t- told me that that was probably his favourite uh, outing at PMQs. When you were going into that um, particular edition of PMQs, Aisha, were you prepared for the kitchen jokes? Probably not quite so many. Um, I think we were always prepared um, for what David Cameron was going to throw at us, apart from one time when just randomly Ed had like had had quite a bad haircut and he called him Basil Brush for like no reason. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anybody could have quite anticipated that, to be honest. But Cameron was he liked a joke and he did like to really rib Ed and um, quite mercilessly. So part of our preparation and as Paul said, prep prep goes on for a long time and with Ed it was like a hostage situation and part of our job was to kind of pretend to be David Cameron and sort of throw horrible things at Ed which was which was quite cathartic (laughs) for people in his office not quite so good for the poor man's confidence and self-esteem himself 
but I think what's really hard is like um you know when you know that you you know what's good is if you anticipate an attack and then you sort of have a rejoinder ready so I remember one time um like Ed had there was some story about Ed in student politics and David Cameron was definitely going to do a crack at Ed so he he did it and we anticipated it and then Ed stood up and had a really good crack back at him saying well okay I might have been a square at university but at least I wasn't like wrecking restaurants with the Bullingdon club and that got a really good response and even David Cameron sort of laughed at that because I think both sides of the chamber quite like the theatre they like the joust and the the best jokes even though they're quite cruel are the ones where basically everybody kind of laughs and joins in well let's take a listen this was uh, this is an ed miliband gag uh, after alcohol pricing had been in the news mr speaker in the light of his u-turn on alcohol pricing can the prime minister tell us is there anything he could organize in a brewery <laughs> Good gag, good gag. Um, and I, I, so, what is the point then overall for, for PMQs? Apart from making everyone laugh, uh, does it really change the political weather? I mean, we'll hear in a, a second clip from William Hague. I mean, William Hague, widely seen as being brilliant at PMQs, led the Tory party to a terrible defeat in 2001. Yes. But he, he tends to be this sort of exception to the, to the rule because he was absolutely brilliant at PMQs. And in fact, when we interviewed him for, for the book uh, Punch and Judy Politics, he actually said that his it was like the only thing he had that he could gift the <laughs> Conservative Party because they had been absolutely smashed by Tony Blair. But he had this great wit in the chamber. So PMQs allowed him to bring back a bit of dignity to the Conservative um, Party. But on the whole, it's not the individual PMQs win or lose the next general election, but a direction of travel emerges at PMQs and often PMQs are the place where parties will test attack messages. So, for example, when Ed first faced David Cameron across the dispatch box, Cameron, right from the beginning in 2010, started testing election messages, which were then used in the short campaign in the in the 2015 election campaign. You know, long-term economic plan, can't trust them with the economy, blah, blah, blah. So the, the PMQs provides a really important sort of testing ground and a really important direction of travel. And it's quite good. It sort of does give you an insight into the person, doesn't it? Paul, in that uh, you know, an individual good outing at PMQs isn't necessarily going to make any difference to the outcome of an election. But you do get a sense of, is this someone with the killer instinct? Is this someone who can think on their feet? Is this someone who can uncover something to embarrass the other side? All those things which ultimately add up over time to yeah. uh, electoral success. Definitely. I mean, it's a big window into into the mind of that person, that person who is Prime Minister at the time. I mean, so, you know... Uh, Theresa had, you know, definitely moments of wit. I mean, there were, but I think what came across in PMQs for her was like, she was always on top of the detail. And, you know, so that was her strength that she used to try to exhibit. But yeah, it is like, it's a, it's a really unforgiving environment. And in that <laughs> sense, like you do sort of see the soul of the person laid bare. I mean, and, you know, but I think part of the reason that you, you should keep it uh, apart from all the sort of, slightly worthy arguments about democracy and accountability <laughs> is, the, is the, the opportunity for farce. And I remember mm. once there was this point where Jeremy Corbyn, I think some people will remember this, but he, uh, he decided like, we were in some kind of horrendous Brexit mire as always. And, <laughs> uh, and he used all six of his questions about buses because it was oh. national bus week or something. And, you know, there's a lot of attention paid to that. And there was, a point afterwards where Theresa has this, or all prime ministers have these 
uh, files put together by incredible civil servants, which are basically the file of all knowledge. At some point on every page in there is every question you could ever need to know the answer to. And, uh, and the press secretary gets a copy of it for their briefing afterwards. But anyway, uh, and Theresa was sort of on her way out and had the file of all knowledge sort of tucked sturdily under the arm and said, oh God, thinking back to National Bus Week and how we had just been co- completely caught off guard by this thing. She just said, is it a week? <laughs> and after that, we did have someone whose job it was to sort of look through uh, all sorts of national weeks, national days, international days, or whatever. <laughs> that, like, that was their job, uh, just to find out what's and so, the note in the what, side of all knowledge. What's so funny about that is that bus, Busgate created such a drama because people were like, why is Jeremy Corbyn going on about buses? But it was actually seen as quite a good issue. And now... Buses are actually Look, quite buses are a thing. Buses are the thing. Buses I... are, are a thing. But um, William Haig told us a great story as well, and actually uh, Blair told us a great story. It's that when Haig first came up against um, uh, Tony Blair, and Tony Blair was quite new, and as Fo- uh, Paul said, had that folder of life, he would jump between topics at the beginning of the alphabet right to one's towards the end of the alphabet so Tony Blair would be scrabbling you could go from buses to zoos and that <laughs> yeah. would that would catch him completely off guard <laughs> but in fact we can hear from before I let you go we can actually because I spoke to William Hague about this on the Red Box podcast last year so let's take a listen to William Hague now I don't know if you remember but the the, the new Labour government had this idea it would publish an annual report on its achievements like a company you know it was one of these new ideas in politics and they would have a tick for when they'd accomplished something in their manifesto and, or, a, you know, a gap or a cross where they hadn't. Well, of course, you can imagine the difficulties this led them into. And by the 1999 annual report, it was just a risible document. <laughs> um, and we had such fun with that. That's so much fun at this platform. They never published Another one, you know, they, they had errors. <laughs> they, they had claimed the new National Institute for Sport or whatever it was going to be called had been found, created in Sheffield. Well, since Seb Coe was my closest advisor, he was able to tell me no brick had been laid, the thing wasn't happening. And so we, uh, Tony Blair was utterly destroyed about that. Um, then we found out that of the 50,000 copies of the previous annual report, 40-something thousand had been bought by the government. So we were, we were able to say, you know, this is not exactly Harry Potter, is it? <laughs> and um, Alistair Campbell had his head in his hands in the public gallery, and they never published a report again after that. That's William Hague uh, speaking to me last year. You can listen to that. Uh, um, in fact, it was exactly this time last year because we, we, I spoke to him specifically about what happens when you become leader of the opposition when no one cares, as he did in 97, as uh, Keir Starmer did 12 months ago. Aisha has a week. Uh, just a reminder of what's your book, what your book's called? Oh, Punch and Judy Politics, an insider's guide to Prime Minister's it is questions. A, it is a terrific read if you want to know all about uh, PMQs. Aisha, thanks so much for joining us. You can hear Aisha on Times Radio Drive on Saturday and Sunday. And Paul House and former press secretary to uh, Theresa May as well. Thanks very much for joining us. Up next, that's what the, goes on on the inside, but it's much more fun sitting in the press gallery uh, throwing tomatoes. We speak to Quentin Letts and Anne Treadman. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, Anne, uh, your what was the period that you covered as as sketch writer? Who were the uh, who were the, the breakout stars of PMQs during your time? Uh, it was started with Blair, um, and he undoubtedly was uh, he was pretty sharp at PMQs. I moved into Brown. Um, I think we can safely say needs improvement there. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> and then, you know, we had quite a lot of Cameron and I was very sad when Nick Clegg was more or less reduced to a mute person next to uh, Cameron because I quite enjoyed his um, poor Nick phase to the max, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that was your that was your life. And, and Quentin, how long have you been? Because you also you you you, was, you were you were sketching elsewhere before you joined uh, the Times. Yeah. Um, how long have you been sitting in the press gallery for? Uh, too long. Uh, I started with Mrs. Thatcher with the Prime Minister uh, with the <laughs> Telegraph, and it was twice a week then in the afternoon, just a fifteen minute burst. And then we had John Major. Uh, I got sacked for calling John Major dreary by the Telegraph, but. Um, I was told I should have called him unexciting, and he was. He was very unexciting. <laughs> uh, Prime questions only became the modern obsession, really, when Blair made it half an hour once a week. And then it became much more a, a thing for the media. We never used to get quite so excited about it. I don't think the public did either. And really what the sketch writer is looking for, the sketch writer is not looking for the politicians to make jokes. We make jokes, thank you. But what we are <laughs> in is displays of completely egregious greasing or the occasional unexpected arrow in the eye such as when Vince Cable did the Mr Bean thing to Gordon nobody saw that coming it was from such an unexpected quarter as well Vince was such a lugubrious character and suddenly cracked a joke and that was half the fun of it and so you're looking for the unexpected as a sketchwriter and what we don't want either we don't want anyone to commit an act, an act of news uh, news is not, <laughs> not news is bad are interested news in. is always bad <laughs> But, but I suppose, I suppose, we don't understand it, do we? <laughs> we don't understand it, and we can't make jokes about quite a lot of news. So, and I suppose if it, what you really want, though, is for something to like something beyond someone's control. What you don't want is everyone just delivering their jokes quite well and landing their lines. You want someone to be sort of caught on the hop no, we, or made to look yeah, a wally. We really want to fight, and we also like a bit of. I mean, there is literally no point in uh, sort of Judy and Judy. Uh, or whatever PMQs, you know. They, they were, at one point, they were getting rid of Punch and Judy, and then it was we were all thrilled when it all came back. Punch and Punch. <laughs> Almost every um, new leader of the opposition says they want to do away with Punch and Judy politics. Yeah, so two to... people standing up and just being nice to each other and disagreeing politely is not going to work. And and when that happens, it is soul destroying for sketch writers because um, but we f we find a way through. Loss of temper is a very good thing. Uh, yes. Yet, uh, that's why John Burke was the gift to sketch writers. He would get very, <laughs> very cross. Oh, uh, I mean, of the, I mean, but, compared to both of you, my time in the press gallery is, you know, I'm still a mere whippersnapper. But that moment when John Burke completely lost it at PMQs. Um, I what is it? Was it about allegations of him bullying? And then Andrea Ledson got up and said, "Well, you've never apologised for calling me a stupid woman." And it was just electric, and the whole place sort of just fell apart. It was one of the most extraordinary moments I can it, ever remember. It fell apart because it was so gripping to see somebody losing their temper. Yeah, but it, it's the un, it's the unexpected really that one's looking for. You know, the walkout or the walk in. There was a time started Prime Minister's questions when one of the Conservative rebels his seat on the Lib Dem benches and everyone suddenly, oh my goodness, that's fun. Or else, <laughs> somebody falling over as they're going upstairs. So Desmond, Desmond Swain had a terrific cropper once. Uh, and it's, it's, the, it's not the exact sort of the witticisms that make us go, it's the, the glimpses of human nature, be it loss of temper or terrible sucking up from someone like Alan Mack. Uh, and then there used to be a Lib Dem man, who I think was one of yours, surely, uh, Richard Younger-Ross, uh, who used to get teased terribly. And the more that he got teased by the house, the more he lost his temper. And it was <laughs> a terrible vortex. I should... And then the, the, 
the, the baiting would increase. I should point out that by one of mine, you just mean I used to cover Devon in Cornwall. He wasn't one of my yeah. personal. I wasn't, <laughs> I've never lowered myself to actually spinning for the Lib Dems. Um, uh, and also, the other thing that I think is really important about sketch writing is that, up until, particularly up until relatively recently, you only ever saw on TV the faces of the person speaking and not necessarily the people they were speaking about. So let's take a listen. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is a cracking, you know, very well-known line from Tony Blair. But in the uh, footage... You only ever saw Tony Blair, was what you really wanted to see was John Major's face opposite. Isn't it extraordinary that the Prime Minister of our country can't even urge his party to support his own position? Yeah. Weak, weak, weak. Weak. And I tell him, that is the reason his weakness and his failure of leadership are the reason his government is the incompetent mess it is. So that what we really want from that, uh, Anne, is you painting a picture of the faces on the uh, government front bench, and but then also the, the you know the faces of Tory MPs behind. Yeah, that's that's one of the great. Well, even with the additional TV coverage now from the press gallery, you still get an unparalleled view and you see things that you'll never see on TV. And, you know, PMQs is very much an atmosphere. And that's also completely part of sketch writing. You know, you don't get that on TV. You, you hear a lot of shouting, but you do not get the, the true electricity um, or the somberness on serious occasions. Um, it's, it is a fan- it is fantastic theatre. There's just no other word for it. <laughs> well, you can see the, the alliances in the flesh as well. Towards the end yeah. of Mrs. Thatcher's time, Michael Hesseltine, who was then our backbencher, used to sit down beyond the gangway um, uh, near the double doors at the end of the house, and he'd be surrounded by his admirers. And I remember at the end of one, I can't remember if it was Prime Minister's Questions or one, a debate, uh, Hesseltine, who was a wonderful leonine figure with very long legs and tremendously expensive suit, <laughs> Got up at the end of this session, and then his supporters, as one, rose as well, and then left the chamber together. And that was a real statement of his power as a ringleader of rebellion. And you could sense the the mischief afoot as he left the chamber. Just finally, then, who do you think is has been the the, the time you've been covering it? Who has been the best at PMQs, either lead, leader of the opposition or? Or Prime Minister, but who's really mastered the art of it? Let's start with you first, Anne. Well, I have to say that for actual theatre, it was Blair, because he really prepped for it hard. But I did really enjoy Cameron when in true Flashman form, sort of um, zinging around in his sort of crazy way. <laughs> what about you, Quentin? Cameron was very good. Blair had a, a stature about him and very expensive cufflink he used to wear. Used to <laughs> but Cameron had that thing where he stood up first time, I think it was his first outing at PMQs as leader of the opposition, and he said to Blair, he was the future once. And you could sense it was a big moment. Uh, yeah. Unusual for Prime Minister's questions to have such a big moment. It was a moment almost when fashion's relay baton was changing hands. Was a, that was a typical Cameron moment. And also the day that Cameron told off uh, Corbyn for being untidy, not wearing a tie, <laughs> like, like Mr. Jawley's not wearing a tie today. Uh, um, uh, I, that was uh, that was classic. PMQs worked for Cameron because he had that sarcastic, bullying nature, and he he had a streak of cruelty as yeah. well as bonhomie, yeah, which is a, which is kind of a 
bizarre combo, but it it worked. Yeah, it's that, it's that combination of sort of comedy and cruelty, and uh, the, the sort of ruthless. Should have been street. a sketch writer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quentin Letts and Anne Chenoweth, thanks very much for talking us through PMQs. And now we know how to win PMQs, and we'll find out if. Uh, uh, Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer are listening when PMQ's Unpacked returns, not next week, because they're still in recess, but the week after. Tim Shipman will be here. If you haven't heard how we do PMQ's, we pause the action live from the House of Commons to try and explain in real time what is going on between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And listen to my show on Times Radio, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. And to read more about what we've been discussing, you can subscribe at thetimes.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.